Blog Talk Radio. Mister, you may have traveled near or far, but you haven't seen the country till you've seen the country by car. Mister, may I recommend a royal route? It starts in Illinois. Let me tell you, boy. If you ever plan to motor west, travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. Winds from Chicago to L.A. More than 2,000 miles all the way. Get your kicks on Route 66. Now you go through St. Louis, Joplin, Missouri, and Oklahoma City is a mighty pretty you'll see. New Mexico, Blackstaff, Arizona, don't forget Winona, Kingsman, Barstow, San Bernardino. Won't you get it to this timely tip? When you make that California trip, get your kicks on Route 66. Springfield, Illinois Springfield, Missouri, too Seven states, count them Seven spread out in front of you Well, 
good evening, and welcome to the June 5th edition of the Old Dominion Libertarian. I'm Joe and Rusty. I'm here tonight with Andy Craig and Jeff Klebb. Jeffrey Sanford has the night off. So, gentlemen, how are you tonight? I'm good. good. How are you guys? <laughs> Great. Um, I want to start out by uh, talking about the big headline that everybody seems to be talking about on Facebook, and that's the latest attack in London on the London Bridge. And uh, the Trump people are just going nuts. But I want to point out that the guy who did this, first of all, he was a known extremist. Uh, He was filmed in a BBC4 documentary about extremism. They knew he existed. They knew where he was. And not only that, his own mosque had thrown him out for his extreme views, saying they're incompatible with mainstream Islam. So um, there's that. And, you know, these people are saying, like Theresa May, she's saying, well, we we need to monitor the Internet and limit it because we could have prevented this. Well, they didn't need to monitor the Internet to know he was a terrorist. They knew it, and they didn't prevent it. So all she's trying to do is take away more freedom. Uh, Andy, what do you think about all that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I agree. Kind of the big takeaway um, that's going to come out of this is, is Theresa May putting her Internet censorship, um, pushing her Internet censorship bet. Um, and the other thing that is probably probably going to remember about it is is Trump's just unbelievable inability to have even a little bit of decorum um, with the tweets <laughs> he's uh, trolling the mayor of London and and saying this proves the travel you know he needs the travel ban and he's apparently getting into an argument with his own you know lawyers on Twitter basically like bashing the Justice Department. Uh, um, it's pretty. It's pretty you, wild. Uh, yeah. Did you Did you see Kellyanne Conway's husband took a swipe at him on Twitter today over some of his comments? Well, yeah. I mean, the <laughs> thing is, he's, he's. I mean, I God, I would. I can't even imagine how miserable it must be to be the Department of Justice lawyers um, to have a client like it, like every lawyer stereotypical caricature of a bad client, somebody who can't stop running their mouths and screwing it up and contradicting your arguments. And yeah, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, he keeps insisting, oh, I'm going to call it a travel ban because that's what it is. While his lawyers are in court arguing it's not a ban. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like when he when he was shouting, it's not a Muslim ban, it's not a Muslim ban, and Rudy Giuliani and everybody else that worked on this campaign staff was saying it is a Muslim ban, we just can't call it that. You know, <laughs> it's like... Well, the other thing is, is he, within, you know, with Trump jumping on this, this attack in London, um, from what I've seen with the, the preliminary reports, I mean, first... I mean, yes, people died, and I don't want to say don't take that seriously, but at the same time, it's hard to take seriously a vehicle ramming and stabbing it. This is this is desperate loser tactics, um, you know, in terms of doing that kind of thing. And but anyway, the three of, from what I gather, the preliminary reports, uh, none of them were from the countries covered under 
Trump's travel ban. Like one of them was Moroccan and one of them was Pakistani, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So like they wouldn't, you know, even if this had been in the U.S., like they they would not have been covered under Trump's travel ban. Well, you're not supposed to look into it that far, Andy. <laughs> I mean, why why are you trying? Why are you making trouble for Trump? <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're just, supposed you're just a hater. to know that. <laughs> you're not <laughs> supposed to know that. But that that's that's a point that this woman on CNN brought up today about that that that, that the people involved in this thing in the UK, even the people in the background, you know, they're talking about how they arrested 10 people here and five people there and none of them were from the countries that um are covered under Trump's travel ban, and when you say that on Facebook, the first thing, I mean, you don't even have it up uh, five seconds before some Trump guy comes and says, well, it's CNN and it's fake news. Right. And I'm like, did you did you read the travel ban? Well, yeah, I read it, but they're lying. Those people are from those countries. They're They're trying to make you believe that they're not, but they are. And I'm like, every news agency in the world is quoting where they're from. They're not from any of the countries in his travel ban. And they're like, well, you can't believe the news. And then they post something <laughs> from somewhere else that says what they want it to say. And I'm like, well, that's fake news. And they're like, no, it's not, because I believe it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, that's pretty unfortunate, and once again, our our old buddy Rand Paul is not comporting himself in a very libertarian manner, though that won't mm-hmm. I know it won't surprise <laughs> anybody here. But you know, he was going on. I think you told me this, Joe. Actually, you'd seen the interview. He was going on saying how well this just proves the travel ban needs to be broader. It needs to, you know, cover forty-five countries like my bill would have. Exactly. <laughs> he did. Yeah. I mean, he. I don't know if he was specifically mentioning the number of countries, but he said that, you know, Trump doesn't go far enough. And and strangely enough, the woman, he kept saying it's not a Muslim ban, and the woman said, well, name another religious group that Trump's travel ban um, denies access to the country. And he couldn't do that. He said, mm-hmm. well, there are all these Muslims from all these other countries that are allowed to come here. And she said, I'm not asking you about that. She said, I'm asking you of the countries that Trump has wants in his travel ban, who is allowed to come here and who is not? And he couldn't answer that. And she said, it's only against Muslims in those countries. And he said, well, that's still not a Muslim ban. And she, and she pulled the same stuff that Adam Bates says. She said, so I guess a ban on certain types of guns and not others is not a gun ban. And he said, well, that's completely different. That's that. And you know, that's completely different. And she said, no, it's not a ban is a ban is a ban, but he just, and then he pivoted. And instead of answering her, he just started going back to his thing about, well, we need these countries on the list and we need this and Mm -hmm. we need that. And she said, well, that doesn't sound like a very libertarian position. And that's when he said, well, um, I'm a Republican. I don't know if you um, realize that or not, but I'm a Republican. And I'm thinking, yeah, we know that. You made that abundantly clear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, 
Um, yeah, it's, I, mean, um, I agree with you, Andy, kind of that it's... Thing about, well, I was going to say the other kind of ahead. crazy thing about is um, if you look, actually look at the numbers, terrorism um, and uh, deaths from terrorism were a lot higher in Europe in the 70s and 80s than they are today. Um, somebody was passing around the chart that actually shows this, but... Um, you know, terrorist attacks were a lot more frequent and a lot more deadly, uh, you know, 40 years ago than they are in the past decade in Europe. Um, so this this whole narrative that, oh, terrorism is, is, is you know, spiking in Europe and happening all the time there now and yada, yada. I mean, yeah, there's been obviously there's been a couple of attacks here in the U.K., um, but the big picture numbers are not up. They're down. Well, what do you think about um, the notion, and I saw this on Facebook today, and I can't remember if it was Adam Bates or someone else, but it was an article, and and they had their own commentary with it. But it was talking about when immigrants come into the U.K., and they specifically were talking about the U.K., but they did mention Germany. They said that they, they heard all the immigrants, Muslims, whoever they are, into their own little section, and they don't let them assimilate. They put them in these little Mm -hmm. sections, and they say, this is where you have to stay. You can't do this. You can't do that. And it's been going on for close to 40 or 50 years. And then they scratch their heads and wonder why we have all these people here, and they're not turning British into this, and and they wonder why. What 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 do you make of that, Andy? I mean, that's partly true. I think uh, the rest of Europe is worse about that than the U.K. actually is because in the U.K. they have, I mean, some you know some British Muslims are, are fourth or fifth generation even. I mean, you know, this goes back to the empire um, when, when India and what's now Pakistan and all that was part of the, you know. And so there's a bit of a longer history to it in the U.K. and relatively better assimilation than the rest of Europe, but I even then, it's still worse than here in the U.S., and it's absolutely true that I don't know if it's by law or if it's just a cultural organic thing, but for whatever reason, yeah, they do kind of Well, some people self-segregate. The, yeah, they some, self-segregate. Yeah. Some, but not, uh, they do it to a higher degree than we see in the U.S. I mean, in the U.S., yeah. we have those sorts of immigrant communities, but they pretty much like two or three generations in, they're gone. Like they're dispersed and and mm-hmm. they don't persist the way that we've seen some in Europe. And I don't know if I have a solid explanation for that. Part of it's probably laws and policy and how they do immigration and refugee settlement and stuff. But um, it definitely they has do have those laws in Germany. Do what? They do have those laws in Germany because I was talking to someone on Facebook today who was involved in that conversation, and he said there are laws in Germany that, um, based on your citizenship status, determines where you can live and where you can't. Yeah, and obviously... I've never heard of that. I, I, no, I have heard of that before. Um, I would want to look into it further, but that kind of thing has obviously a very long and ugly history in that part of the world because um, that's how they used to you know, legally classify and I'd heard Jews, I'm, I mean, I'm talking about the Nazi area, I'm talking about centuries before the Nazis, 
Boston um, Union. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, no, the Pale of Settlement in Russia and and similar sorts of things, the, the original ghettos. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah well, I sure see. The, um, yeah, there there was an article there, today that was. Go ahead. I was just saying I don't know what to make of it, but it is something they they are worse at than the U.S. for whatever combination of reasons. Yeah, well, there was an article today. I don't know if it was USA Today or I was looking at several things this morning, and one of them was touching on what you said a little while ago, Andy, about the the driving a car up on the um, on the London Bridge. That this is just a desperate attempt to do something, anything, because they're running out of things to do. They they, they don't have the ability to do what they were what they did have the ability to do. And mm-hmm. and the the article was even saying that this guy was pretty sure that he was being watched and that if he had tried to do something spectacular, A, he didn't have the manpower because he was working by himself, and B, he would have been – it would have been stopped immediately. Well, this should have been stopped immediately, and this, this just goes back to the idea that and I, I don't know if the Trump supporters believe this or if they just don't like people coming from a foreign land, but they, people think that the government, if we just do one more thing, then we can stop terrorism. If we just do one more thing, then we can stop this. And I had Trump supporters telling me today that they don't care how much liberty and freedom they have to give up to stop people from coming here. One guy said to me, we should have zero immigration. There's no need for immigrants to come here. And I said, well, where are your immigrants from? He said, I'm a direct descendant of George Washington. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm a direct descendant of George Washington. I mean, he said it just like that. And it's (laughs) That's kind of like Barack Obama. That's like when Barack Barack Obama said that the these people are just as American as the people who stepped off the Mayflower. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, speaking of a direct descendant of George Washington, I, I hate to break it to him, but uh, uh, most of the people who can claim that are black. Or Jefferson. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know what, I don't know. Same with Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether he was black or not. The vast majority of their, you know, confirmed descendants today are, you know, African Americans who uh, came from their through their slave state. Well, he was he was the father of the country. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know what color he was. He had a his his profile photo was "Make America Great Again," and I didn't dig too deep into that to see. I think what I color think he was. <laughs> it, it didn't. It didn't. To me, it didn't matter about color. I mean, you know, he was nuts. I mean, he was saying that, and we don't need immigration, and you know, and he and somebody else was making the claim that if we never allowed immigration, there would never have been slavery. And I was like, well, I think they would have made an exception. <laughs> That's not <for> that. immigration. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, oh wow! I know <laughs> it would never happen. <laughs> the stupidest yeah, song like, yeah, was from. I think... 
who was it that that um gave that speech and was and and was talking it was somebody i don't know if they were in the trump administration or where they were but they were talking about slavery and how the 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 people came over on the ships and they came here for a better life oh who was that <laughs> yeah it was Ben Carson, the who's now. The oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here for a better life. Mm. Yeah, yeah. like the, the the Egyptian pyramids built as grain grain silos. Oh no! Oh well. <laughs> yes. Another Earth is flat. Uh, ben I don't know. Aside from that one, they've done a pretty good job of tucking him away because nobody cares about the, the housing and urban, the urban development secretary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't heard mm-hmm. I haven't heard much from him lately, so um, that's it's probably a good thing. Nothing. Mm. It's a what? Well, I'm just saying it's a department that does practically nothing. It's it's like the Department of Education. All those things are really under state and local control. And exactly you know, the Tenth Amendment programs. Yeah. Mm. So, well, what do you guys think about Trump's first overseas trip? I mean, as president, I know he's been on a boat before. Well, he. Um, he mostly managed to stick to his script. Um, cuddling up to the Saudis was gross. Uh, he still doesn't understand how NATO works. Um, I don't know. Man, he stopped off in Israel and with the Pope, too. I didn't really have much to say about that. But What do you think know. about relocating the embassy? I'm not sure if that really matters that much. I've gone back and forth on that. I mean, it's a complicated legal issue with regards to the national recognized status of Jerusalem, and I get that. At the same time, like, I don't care which end of a 25-mile road between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. (laughs) If it already is that, I feel like it really shouldn't matter. I thought they were farther than 25 miles. Maybe I'm wrong. I thought they were it's a lot farther like, than that. It might that. be a little bit further than that, but it's not yeah. it's not far there. I mean, you know, if you look at it on a map there, it's maybe maybe fifty miles at the most. Mm-hmm. Well, um you know when when Trump went to um Saudi Arabia and they were having that ceremony and they, they put that thing around his neck. Um Right. I can't think of the name of it. I I could have they if I wasn't having to work. They what? I think uh, Yeah, it was the, was the like metal order or something or other. Yeah, well, there was a there was a guy on Facebook um about a week ago that was just going on and on about how great Trump's um foreign first foreign um trip was and and he was saying he commented on one of my posts that had a picture of the Statue of Liberty, and it said I'm with her. And he commented on it. And he said the Statue of Liberty is old and outdated. Besides, stop trying to make America great with things that were given to us by foreign countries that have nothing to do 
with us and their freedoms. And so somebody else posted underneath his comment that picture of Trump getting that gold medal or whatever it was from the um, from the Saudi Arabian government and from the Saudi king, and it was him actually putting it around Trump's neck, and he said, you mean like this kind of gift? And the guy just like babbled on about how that, that doesn't count and all this, and then we went into the billions of dollars worth of um, arms that were being sold to the Saudis, and he said, well, that's because they're fighting ISIS and they need the weapons. I said, they're arming ISIS. And he like said, well, they're arming, they're arming ISIS, but they're fighting them more. <laughs> they're arming you know, them first, and make... then they're fighting them. <laughs> yeah. the they Saudi, want it to be a fair yeah. fight. <laughs> well, speaking of the Saudis, they might not be using any of that military equipment to fight ISIS. They're probably going to end up using it to, it looks like, possibly invade Qatar. Um, that's the big weird thing that's blown up all of a sudden is, uh, the Saudis and Bahrain and Egypt and the uh, the Emirates all uh, cut off diplomatic relations and sealed their borders and accused uh, the government of Qatar of funding terrorism and all that. It looks like they might be heading towards another war there in the Persian Gulf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they've got a lot of problems over there, but they're, they're, that whole area is just so... So crazy. Well, I think. Yeah, I mean. With the exception of probably North Korea, I think Saudi Arabia is um, probably the second most evil government on the planet in terms of at least its domestic policies. Um, It's it's Mm -hmm. an absolute totalitarian, theocratic hellhole. Um, And for the U.S. to cuddle up to them and, you know, be all friendly and allied with them like we are is. It, it just proves the lie of every time an American president says, oh, we're standing for human rights and democracy and yada, yada. Well, I think we should have elected Camacho as our president, you know? <laughs> I, I, I know Joe gets that joke. I don't think Andy gets it. But no, no, I know President Camacho with with the uh, administration. Yeah. The House of Representatives. (laughs) You remember that, Joe? The House of Representatives, the administration. (laughs) I don't think Andy gets that reference, but it was President Camacho. Okay, yes, yes. (laughs) I feel like we're living in that society already, and it's not taking 500 years. Well, I saw somebody point out that, that President Camacho was actually much better than Trump because he found the the smartest guy in the country, hired him, and then listened to his advice. I mean, that's <laughs> <easy. laughs> Yeah, that was something else. <laughs> I think every Trump, American should Trump, watch that movie at least once. Yeah, Trump found the smartest guy in the country and said, oh, here's fake news, and he kept going. <laughs> Oh, well, we're supposed to have with us tonight um, Skip Share, and I think he'll be here any minute um, to talk with us. He's a candidate for the House of Delegates here in Richmond, and um, Mm -hmm. he is is running, um, 
and he's going to be challenging Jeff Bourne, who was on our school board and managed to get himself elected to the House of Delegates. After only being on the school board, um, he got he was on the school board for one term, and then he got reelected. And within a month of being reelected, he went into a special election and won that. Left, and they didn't have a school board member. I don't think they even have one yet, because it was more mm-hmm. important for him to be in the House of Delegates than on the school board. Well, so we know we know the reason for that. Let me ask before we get our, our guest on and go into the details of his race. Um, I guess the deadlines must be coming up here pretty quick. Uh, how many candidates does it look like uh, Virginia will have on the ballot uh, with y'all's weird off-year elections this year for the Libertarian yeah, Party? Um, well, um, er, the deadline for turning in the signatures is June 13th, which is primary day here in Virginia, mm-hmm. where we have everybody squaring off for governor and lieutenant governor. And... So we have to have everything turned in by then. Uh, Next, um, what date is it? The 26th of of June, we're going to have another candidate on, Terry Hurst, who is running uh, for the House of Delegates down in the Tidewater area. And, boy, he's a great candidate. Everybody likes him. And, in fact, after they go to one of his events, it's like a letdown to go to anything else because he fires everybody up and then, and then the other candidates are like boring, and I don't mean that in a bad way. He's just he's he's great. Uh, he's coming on. So I'm, without looking at a list, I'm gonna say we probably have in between fifteen and twenty candidates running. That's not bad. Um, at all. Acro- mm. Across the state, um, mm. and. Um, we have a new guy running here, and we have two running in Richmond, one in the 71st and one in the 69th. And the guy that's running in the 69th just jumped into the race a week ago, and he's scrambling to get signatures, and it looks like he's going to do it. Um, you only need 125 for House of Delegates. Uh, that's not too bad at all. Yeah, you should be no, able to they're easy. on a weekend. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to get um, to get those, it seems. Um, so we're looking, we're looking pretty good. I mean, Skip Share, who's supposed to be on tonight, um, he he looks like he's going to get all of his signatures. So I mean, we're we're doing pretty good. And the the uh, one of the candidates here in Richmond, she's already in the House of Delegates, Betsy Carr. She is. A Democrat. She's been in office probably as long as Methuselah, um, and um, I mean she's been in there. She's been in there a long time. And she was in um, there before they invented electricity. Yeah, and when they invented electricity, they had to look at her. Um, but anyway, um, that's who the guy Jake Crocker is running against, and he's the new guy that just jumped in. And the Democrats don't know what, what you know. They don't know what's going on because they weren't expecting this. Now that doesn't mean that mm-hmm. these guys will win, but they're all concentrating out in the suburbs because they think the city is safe. And right. now we've got two candidates running, and 
and they don't even really know it yet. And if they're, if they're listening to the show, they know it, but I doubt they listen to this show because it's common sense. And, <laughs> you know. <laughs> is yeah, the well, 71st um, but, the same district as Jennifer McClellan? It was, uh-huh. She's no longer, she is. she has moved on. Yeah, Jeff Bourne took her place. They had a special election, and he and he won that. And she moved on, and he moved on. She's in the state so senate was, now, right? Absolutely. Uh huh. She's in the state senate, bending over backwards now, giving the Republicans whatever they want. I mean, that was that hmm. was one of the big things about her was. Um, um, she would um, she would go to these events and she would say, um, if it weren't for me being there, if you, you know, she'd say, if you think it was bad now, just think about how it would be if I wasn't there. And then all the Republicans that Steve Emholt and I would talk to when we were on the campaign trail would say, well, we don't want her leaving the House of Delegates because – she rolls over and gives us whatever we want. You know, she votes mm-hmm. their way. She does what we want. Um, all we have to do is ask, and we get what we want. And it wasn't just one Republican. It was just about all of them that have any sort of power um, mm-hmm. um, there. So, well, I – guys, I'm not seeing Skip Shore in the calling queue, and I think he just forgot. So I got a message from Terry Hurst just now, and he's listening, so that's good. And I'm going to ask Terry if he's listening and he wants to call in. The number to call in is 347-994-2949, and we can talk with Terry and um, see what he's up to in his race down in the Norfolk and Tidewater area. So again, the number mm-hmm. is, in case he's still listening, 347-994-2949. And if Skip happens to call in, we can chat with him for a few minutes after we get through with Terry. So, Terry, if you're listening, go ahead and call in if you're able. <laughs> uh, he, well, he said he was listening, and he was very happy about the plug that I just gave his campaign. So I'm hoping that he that he's still <laughs> listening and and that he will call in. Um, but well, yeah, Skip's a very nice guy. That. You I what? Was just gonna, I was just going to say while we're waiting on that, uh, does anybody have any more uh, general news topics to hit? There's this thing with Trump saying he wants to privatize air traffic control. That's not a bad idea. If they do it's it right. right. If they do it right. It, but it's something that I posted about it earlier. Actually, you know, everybody's flipping out about, oh, it's going to be, you know, anarchy and planes will be crashing into each other or whatever. Um, this is actually, <laughs> you know, this is actually something that most of the rest of the Western world has already done. If you look at air traffic control in Canada, in Germany, in the U.K., um, they're all these kind of quasi-private um, consortiums of the airlines and other stakeholders, uh, but it's, it's privatized. It's not a government agency that runs air traffic control in Canada. 
Um, mm-hmm. And and the other main thing is is really um, the the people who are using the system need to pay for it. Right now, uh, somebody flying around uh, a millionaire on their business jet. Uh, you and I, as general taxpayers, are paying for the air traffic control service that they're using, and they should be paying for it. Yep. So I'm well, a, we have like Terry. Yeah. Like somebody made a comment on Facebook, which is a perfect example, is Trump is going to uh, take a perfectly sane and respectable being and make it seem loony just by associating himself with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's almost true. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of like um, I was having a conversation with a friend over breakfast, and he was talking about, I don't remember, oh, it was about nominating Joe Lieberman for FBI director. Oh, and God. he said that, that's not and happening. he Lieberman dropped out. Yeah, I know, but he was saying that, that Chuck Schumer was going on and on about how we'll never approve him, we'll never, we'll never vote him in. And I said, well, you know, if Trump had come forward and said, okay, everybody, I've decided to nominate Chuck Schumer for FBI director, Chuck Schumer would immediately jump up and say, he's no good, I'm not voting for him. And I said, it's all because Trump suggested it, but that's the reality of it. People, I mean, even people that support Trump, when he suggests something, they look at it like, uh, okay, even if they agree with it, they it's kind of like it came from him, so I gotta it's it's always suspect. You know? <laughs> they might defend it on Facebook until they're blue in the face, but it's always suspect. So but deep down they're have, not gonna like it. Yeah. We and I've had people tell me that I don't like what Trump did, but I have to support it. Um, wow. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, we have Terry Hurst on the line, so I'm going to bring him on, and you guys get ready with your questions for Terry. And here we go. Uh, hi, Terry. Uh, how are you tonight? Great, great, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on. You're quite welcome. It's a it's a pleasure. I'm glad we could we can make it happen. Um, so tell us a little bit about thanks. Uh, tell us a little bit about you, your background, and and why you've decided to run for office. Um, those are probably the best two questions and the easiest ones to answer. <laughs> um, I, I'm re- I'm really rather new to the whole political scene. I've never run for a political office in my life before. Uh, really, honestly, never had any designs on doing it or thought that I would. Um, I'm the kind of guy that was sitting in the shadows for years, just letting everyone else do that kind of stuff while I was busy raising six kids, you know, trying to hold down mm-hmm. jobs and feed the mouths and, and whatnot. And, um, it was about 10 years ago that a coworker of mine approached me and we had a history. We had kids at little league together. And when he came to work at the company, it wasn't like the typical coworker situation. You know, we actually had those conversations about religion and politics, you know? And, um, yeah, it was, it was about the time that Obama announced his first candidacy and we got into one of those conversations and, um, he asked me where I stood on various things here and there. And, 
And he looked at me and started chuckling. He said, you know, you're a libertarian and you don't even know it. And he was laughing. I was like, what? I don't even know what you're talking about, you know. And um, time went by, never got involved. You know, I did take the shortest political quiz that day. That's the first thing he he had me do is is I realized I was smack dab in in the middle of the libertarian quadrant a decade ago. So I looked at our options for candidates this past election cycle, and I was not impressed to say the slightest. And um, I said, boy, what was it that guy said I was? Uh, uh, liber, liber, libertarian, right, right. So I went and researched it to find out who's the libertarian candidate for 2016. I, I found out and read up on, on Johnson and Weld, really could get behind a majority of what they were saying, um, threw $15 at him on one of his $15 million money bombs, and, of course, that put me on a list, right? And um, as soon as I got on that list, I was asked to volunteer somewhere, fell in love with the things that were being said, even printed out the LP platform, and I, and, and I told my wife I was going to be honest with myself. I went point by point down every plank of the platform of the, at LP.org. And I said, I'm going to mm-hmm. highlight it yellow if I can be on board with it 50% of the, of the way, at least 50%. And if I can't get on board with this plank 50%, I'm going to highlight it pink. And I only mm-hmm. uncapped my highlighter, my pink highlighter, one time that night. And that's mm-hmm. when I realized I'm pretty much a lot more libertarian than I thought I was. And um, mm-hmm. that guy that... I met that day when I volunteered at the table happened to be the third congressional district chair for Virginia, Rick Caldwell. Mm-hmm. He invited me out. Oh, to I know Rick. Affiliate. Sure. Yeah. He invited me out to the um, regional affiliate that day. And of course I didn't do anything with that until the election passed. And I, like so many others were just frustrated. Like, Holy cow, you know, two of the worst candidates in history and our guy, you know, to some accounts, fell on his face. I didn't see it that way. That's that's what was being mentioned in these circles. And I said, no, no. And 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 the talk of you know we need to get back to, um, you know, get away from producing candidates. We need to go back to just outreach and enlightenment. I said, no, hold on a second, y'all. Um, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld woke up a guy like me and pulled me out of the shadows. And and I may not be you know Ron Paul. I might not might not even be Rand Paul or half of the people that I've come to realize in my research research are, are, are giants in the liberty movement. But I'm a guy that thinks like a lot of my friends. They're not far left. They're not far right. There's this massive gulf in the middle of people that are really more liberty-minded than they realize. And they really are more mm-hmm. about reducing government, reducing taxation, and, and I'm, a, I'm a Navy veteran, so allow me a, a, a maritime or nautical analogy, if I may. There's so many people that, like me, want to see reasonable change occur in our government. But when you, when you do some research and you get around some of the stalwarts, you realize there's, there's some more moderates and there's some more extremists in the libertarian movement, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and and for me, I'm not the kind of guy that you know. I feel the Amer- American politics, America as as a democratic experience and, and experiment, really built up a head of steam, for good or for worse, b- 
better or for worse, you know, they've got this really strong head of steam with where where things are at after 200 years. It's like a mm-hmm. battleship. When, it's like a battleship pulling 40 knots with a rooster tail. You're not going to slap <laughs> all right now and start going the other way. Now, I know there's some that mm-hmm. want that to be the message, and there's some that want that to be what happens this election cycle or, or next election cycle. But reality speaks that America doesn't change quickly. By human nature, no one likes to change quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's real tangible things that we can do with a pragmatic voice that says, you know what? Yes, I know that's the end goal, but there's things we can do today that I can sell to my neighbors and my friends and others that may be feeling I'm not quite comfortable in the camp <laughs> I've been in in 20 years. Maybe there's room for me to be liberty-minded like this guy because he says a lot of things that I can agree with, you know? And so that's but, kind of what uh, me out of the shadows, and I said, let's do this. Let's, let, you know, I had friends and family saying, you, you know how to string together three lucid sentences. Great, let's do that. And I said, you know, that's a big mm-hmm. conversation to have with your wife. You don't just jump into politics overnight, you know? And um, after we had those conversations, we decided, you know what, if they need me, they need me to be their voice, I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll try to be their voice for them. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. got us where we are today. Well, uh, Terry, I just got to say, I, I I love that story and the perspective you bring to it. I um, actually worked on the Johnson campaign, and, and that was the goal we had when we talked about growing the party, is bringing people like you into it and that, you know, have that kind of pragmatic mindset. Because I, I do believe that, uh, a pragmatic libertarianism that, that reaches out to the center and, and engages with the mainstream of American politics, I think that can win elections. Um, Absolutely. I don't think that has to be the, you know, half a percent uh, that, that you know, some people seem to be satisfied with, that, you know, we're going to build castles in the sky and mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't really matter how many votes it gets. Um, but I mean, I, I feel like that's a, you're, you're exactly the kind of candidate we need to grow the Libertarian Party into a real political force and kind of get away from the, the debate club mentality and the kind of no-win amateurism um, of the LP. And I'm, so I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And, you know, like I said, as somebody worked on the Johnson campaign, that's exactly what we were hoping to do for the Libertarian Party is bring people like you into it, now ultimately running as a candidate. I'm again carrying that message forward, so that's awesome. Well, thank you for your work on that campaign, because if I'm a product of that, that's great. I hope there's more guys out there like me and ladies out there like me. I know there are. I know I know there's people sitting on the fence today. Maybe there's someone that's listening to the show tonight that, you know, in some other state, and they're saying, you know what, I was kind of thinking about that too, but this guy sounds – he sounds like an everyday Joe just like me. You know, that's all it takes is just for enough people to get up enough gumption to say, you know what, it's time for me to put in my bid in civil service and contribute to this liberty. You know, I think there's a quote way back in the day that um, those that enjoy liberty must, like men, bear the weight of it. Right. Something along those lines. And, and, and at some point, you know, <laughs> If you're enjoying the fruits of something, at some point you should be contributing to it as well. And and I think right. you're right. There's others out there that that want to that want to be part of the solution and aren't quite sure how. Just do what I did. Surround yourself by some people that you trust. 
learn, educate yourself daily. There is no ending to the, to the growth cycle. I'm, I'm, I'm reading something. I'm listening to something every day because I understand that there is a growth curve, and I have to pick up and, and, and fill that gap because should we be successful, there will be people counting on you and looking to you to say, how did you do it? And if I can Absolutely. create a, a duplicatable recipe, then you've got the makings of the movement that you work towards and so many other are hoping can be, you know, something that really sinks in and people can say, by golly, we finally got it. We've got a viable third choice here, and it's not some mm-hmm. fringe thing, not just some flash in the pan. It's a bona fide real choice. And, then, and that that is, uh, you know, that's what I think there's demand for. Um, that's why, you know, that's why I think, even though we all wanted more uh, in terms of the LP for the 2016 presidential run, you know, to get up to 3.5% and, you know, 4.5 million voters was, was, you know, a long way off from winning, but it was a big leap for the LP. Um, Dude. From where you know we've been, if you could go back and look through all the history, uh, the, I think there was there was one other campaign back in 1980 that had broken one percent of the vote, and all the rest of them were you know around 0.3, percent. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, you know, the, there's still a pretty wide disconnect that we hope to fill in, and and you know between those four and a half million people who voted for Gary Johnson and the give or take 20,000 people who are members of the National Libertarian Party. Um, It's about 400,000 people who are registered libertarians. You know, there's different definitions. I used to find members. But um, I think, you know, that's the real growth opportunity. Um, And that's why, you know, I felt very strongly about having to – Credible, experienced national political figures who've been two-term governors, um, who both got reelected, uh, really kind of helps send that message that hey, these aren't well, you know, like you say, the fringe kooks. These aren't the Lyndon LaRouche people, or uh, you know, whatever other you know. These aren't just the crazies uh, hanging out on the Lyndon LaRouche. Represent the real center of American politics, this classical liberalism that uh, so much of the American system and the Constitution and our history is built on, um, and that people just are so frustrated because they can't get it from either, either made, you know, there's people who, who, you know, they, they, they don't want to go for all the, the gay bashing, but they also want their taxes to be cut, and they don't have a choice. There's people who want marijuana legalized, but also like mm. free markets. And they don't have a choice, um, and that's that's really I think the demand we can fill uh, in the LP and build it up into something that can win uh, major offices. Absolutely. Well, Terry, I'm looking at your website again for probably the hundredth time, and I'm going <laughs> down um, your issues page, and I mean, it's like. I'm 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 kind of jealous of the people in Tidewater because they have you and we don't. Um, you know, <laughs> you know. I mean, I wish you were here. <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> abolish the death penalty, end the drug war, return to community policing, um, 
stop uh, abusive toll collection practices, rights restoration, create a better business climate. I mean, I could go on. I mean, it's like, you know, you're the perfect candidate to run, and we need to duplicate you. <laughs> well, and I I appreciate that, and thank you so much. Um, it, it's humbling to know that, um, again, th- those that I look up to in the Liberty Movement can look back at me and say, I can put my name behind this guy. And, and that was a big goal for me. I told my wife, A, I'm not going to do this just to be an ulcer-ran candidate. I had absolutely zero interest on just being someone who had their name and got their name with an L next to their name, and really that was the end of it. Um, right, which happens heard so me, often in parties. Yeah, I mean, she heard me speak about what was on my heart and if I was going to do this, why I was doing it. And from Jump Street, I said, if I do this, it's going to be because, A, I believe I have a chance to win, and, B, because this message can and will be heard by a large audience of people that want it to be heard and actually will be behind it, and, and C, should we be successful, those that rallied behind me will never have a problem saying, I was there and I supported him. They, they would never regret having support that way. And when you walk into something with that, that's a massive heavy on you. Remember that every day you walk out the door, every time you pick up the phone, um, even, even when we just go out in town just to do something as a couple, I'm mindful of the fact that someone may recognize me now, and I want them to be able to be proud and say, hey, that's that guy that I'm backing. I, I remember hearing about you. I heard you at my Civic League meeting. Keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing it right. And and when that's your spirit, when that's your motivation, when that's your mindset, I tell you what, um, the, the word I'm getting by those that I trust in, in my community down here, um, by those that are my uh, on my team, my, my chief strategist, if you will, you know, when they can utter things like, I give you a 70% chance, that's, that's monstrous to me. That's massive. This, this seat, this House of Delegates seat has been held, um, anecdotally I've been told, it's been held since the Civil War by Democrats. That's a, massive, that's a massive mountain to overcome. But when I can hear people in the political realm look at me and say, but you're standing for the things that a lot of people in your district stand for – you speak about it in a way that they can get behind. That just emboldens and encourages you. And and I'm going to be honest with you. House of Delegates is, was my choice. I had I had those that were encouraging me to get into the into the political fray, encouraging, let's just say, much higher seats. <laughs> and I and I insisted right. we start for House. We start with House of Delegates. That's where I want to start. I want I want to actually cut my teeth at at the House level. Um, I want to prove to my constituents that I can do what I told them I was going to do, that I can be true to what I promised them I was going to be. I'm going to say no as often as I need to. I'm also going to say yes as often as I can. But we're going to make sure that we do this and hold true to our principles and get them what they need with less government. And if they if they like what I do, then we'll talk about other seats up and beyond House of Delegates. Well, well, that's that great. Was, uh, 
That is great. I, I was just glancing here at your website. I noticed, so you happen to have here, I gather this is a bit of a hot-button issue in Virginia. It has been more than some states, and that's uh, abolishing the death penalty. Um, I just wanted to mention, we were actually, Joe was there with me, too, in, in Orlando at the national convention last year, and that was that was one of my proudest moments, and it passed pretty overwhelmingly when we actually make that an official party platform plank because it ha- it hadn't been previously. We hadn't mentioned the issue in our national platform. Um, and now the, the, the entire Libertarian Party is officially on the record as uh, as being abolitionist on the death penalty. And so I'm, I was very glad to have that. I, I feel very strongly about that issue, so I was, I was pleased to see that uh, as one of your, your four or five bullet points you've got here. Um. <laughs> That's an interesting story. I'm glad you bring it up. Um, I actually used to be pro pro death penalty, and I'm I'll be 49 this year. And um, in my younger days, in my early 20s and whatnot, I was considerably more impressionable, I guess we could say. And my sphere of influence was such that many of them were uh, conservative and pro death penalty. I was I was um, raised in a fairly conservative environment. Um, when I matriculated my degree um, as a slightly older adult, <laughs> considerably later than most people would have gone to. Hey, uh, I'm in the university. same boat there, man. I hear you on how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, once, once I was matriculating my degree in psychology with a minor in criminal justice, I wrote a paper on the death penalty, and I actually flipped my own script I was going to write that paper on how to support and why we should support the death penalty. And as I got into my own research, I changed my own mind. And you'll find out, and Joe will tell you, anyone that's been around me, Cliff Hyra, they'll tell you I'm about as transparent as the day is long. And um, I actually ended up writing that paper with so many cited resources, and I actually got an A on that paper for two major reasons um, that I changed my, my stance on the death penalty. A, of course, how can we license the state to commit just as licentious of an act, you know, as the offender, right? Um, B, 4% of the time, the convicted was wrongly convicted. That's 1 in 25. Now, yeah, if no, it's, your it's fa- that bad. You know, if it's your family member or, or kin of any kind that's been wrongly convicted, you're quickly going to find out how much your anti-death penalty when you realize that it could be wrong and you could be putting someone to death Rem- if they're in it. Remember Earl Washington. Right. Earl Washington. Yep. Well, yeah, the, the Innocence Project, I mean, there's, since the modern death penalty came back into effect in the 70s after the Supreme Court lifted a hiatus on it, there's been, I believe, um, almost 200, <laughs> it's 100-something at least, people who've been convicted and sentenced to death row and then exonerated and are walking around free today. Right. Yeah. And what well, is it's, it's just a one. crazy number. It's not, you know, you might, if you ask people what, you know, they'll say, Oh no, that's never happened. Or maybe one or two it's happened. You know, that it, you know, it's a triple digit number of people who are death row exonerees free in the United States today. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if points A and B weren't enough to swing someone, let's give them point C, which is let's just go after the, the monetary side of this. As soon right. as prosecution puts death on the table, 
based on my studies, and, and it was it was a meta-analysis, if you will. We were looking at North Carolina, Texas, New Jersey, California, Virginia. On average, you're adding a million-dollar price tag when attempting to try a case with death on the table. And right. So it's just honestly, when you look crazy. at how much it costs to house someone in Gen Pop instead of, um, you know, all things that come with a death case, you know, additional representation, automatic appeals, on average, a million dollars extra, that could easily house someone. And if you look at states like New Jersey that have the death penalty, and out of all of their convictions, they've actually put zero to death at the time I wrote that paper, zero execution. Those that are pro-death penalty are getting absolutely zero ROI on those extra dollars, and that's not very sound. Right. Well, and that's a, um, you know, there's been in- interesting recently. There was actually, uh, so this is an issue that came up, and a uh, our, one of our three, I believe, currently libertarian state legislators actually played a pretty big role. This was, this was before she switched parties. I'm talking about Nebraska, um, where they have a unicameral legislature, and it's uh, State Senator Laura Ebke, uh, who's a member of the Libertarian Party, was initially elected as a Republican and then switched. But they actually had a bill that they passed on a by, or I guess I should say tripartisan basis, um, to repeal the death penalty. And it was the first state that had repealed it in a long time. Like there had been a dry spurt for a long time where no new states had repealed, had abolished the death penalty. And Nebraska did it. And unfortunately, the governor made a big stink out of grandstanding and opposed it. He vetoed it. The legislature overrode their veto, but then the governor put it on, uh, they did a ballot initiative. And unfortunately, the ballot initiative came down on the side of keeping the death penalty. Um, but I just mentioned that because it's one of the issues that came up why uh, Senator Ebke actually switched from being a, a uh, Republican state legislator to being a libertarian state legislator. And um, and now she's actually the chair of the Criminal Justice and Judiciary Committee. So basically every criminal justice law in Nebraska, new criminal justice law in Nebraska is going to come through the committee she chairs uh, to be marked up or rejected or however it goes. Um, so, I mean, I think even even just having a single uh, third-party libertarian voice in a state legislature can have a real meaningful impact um, in a way that, you know, adding one more Republican or one more Democrat doesn't do make any difference. Right. Well, what about a case like last weekend, Memorial Day weekend, when a state trooper was on duty and they conducted a vehicle stop, and the guy got out and shot the trooper right point blank in the chest and killed him. Wouldn't you think somebody like that, that's capital murder of a police officer, wouldn't you su- suspect that that is worthy of capital punishment? Or that guy, Ricky Gray, who he and his cohort murdered a mother and father and murdered the children in front of them before killing them? I mean, you know... If it's certainly heinous, but you can't have it both ways. Right you can't say, "Well, if I we know. have the right guy, we should we should kill him." But if we don't, we like should. Like Timothy Spencer, the South dead. Side Strangler, Ted Bundy, <laughs> people like that. Yes, but not for circumstantial evidence. I mean, if there's like video evidence, or the guy confesses, or there's DNA, 
or something, you know, really strong, like the guy who shot that trooper. I mean, that was clear cut. You know, they knew who the guy was and everything. That's different than, you know, well, it was a white guy about 5'8 driving a red pickup truck. I mean, there are, there are times when they have bungled it, but when it's something totally, you know, um, when it's, and it's an open and shut case like that, you know, I'm skeptical of, the, skeptical of the death penalty because of the Earl Washington and people like that. But, you know, DNA evidence exonerated him. But DNA evidence can also convict somebody as well. And when there's, you know, you have a guy like Ted Bundy or Timothy Spencer, the Southside Strangler, um, you know, shoot, get a tall tree and a short pizza rope and be done with it, you know. But well, not for I, something... I, I can, I can certainly appreciate the... Um... I can appreciate the passion that is behind those types of cases, no question. And, and, and it's heinous and deplorable, no question. However, um, and I don't have my paper from some years back, but I do remember a couple of key points that I made in that paper. And if I may, if the purpose of punishment is either deterrence or retribution, well, from a deterrent standpoint, the real interest is to keep them separated from society permanently. And there's no question death is a permanent solution to that. Well, so nobody who's ever been executed ever murdered anybody ever again. That's for sure. That's, that's one argument. Certainly. However, you know, keeping them incarcerated without probability, without possibility of parole, et cetera, they will spend the remainder of their life behind bars, Right them removed from society. And, and the other side to that, barring a theological debate, of course that's my key phrase, barring a theological debate, if you put them to death, the moment they die, they're, once their consciousness ends, how are they going to know how much they've been punished after that moment? They really won't. The only you're really benefiting in any way are those victims that will find some type of solace, comfort, joy, you name it, in the fact that that person is dead, even though that they, you know, permanent incarceration could have easily just as well removed them from society. But so, well, some, some people, people, some people, it's a form of closure. But I can tell you from being a former law enforcement officer and hearing about something like that that's so heinous, a guy, you know, is a convicted, wanted criminal, he's violent, he's murdered people, and then he murders a police officer, um, you know, trying to legally affect an arrest. I mean, I'm sorry, but somebody like that is a waste of oxygen, and it doesn't do us any good to waste taxpayer money keeping the bastard alive. Maybe I'm biased, but, but I'm sorry. Or, as or the guy I, who murders a child. I, but see, Jeff, you can't... It, go ahead, Terry. No, no, go ahead, well, I was just going to say that that's a very easy thing to say. Well, we should only kill the ones where there's definite proof, but how do you codify that into law? You really can't. It's either you have the death penalty or you don't. There's no middle ground. And that's if there's a chance that you could put even one person to death that shouldn't be there, then it's worth keeping all the bad guys alive that probably should be killed. And, and to yes. speak back to that, why should, why should I spend money keeping this person alive? Because it's still cheaper in the long run 
than it would have been to pay the extra million dollars to attempt seeking the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because most people that that you that you convict and sentence to death, they don't just say, "Oh, okay, oh well, that's you know, you got me." You know, they they spend twenty years appealing sometimes. Well, most of that's mandatory. They don't even have, even if they want to. Usually, uh, most of these appeals can't be dropped. Uh, yeah, the appeal happens automatically. It does. And that's you know, I mean, and you can say, well, that's the that's the you know, then we have too many appeals and we wait too long and we should just you know do it the next week or something. But then you you know, then that four percent innocent number jumps up to twenty percent. I mean, the system is very fallible. Um, there's, you know, I mean, just thinking, and and the other thing I'll say is just it's healthy for the politics of a state to have this issue taken off the table. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in Arkansas, uh, which has and regularly practices. In fact, Arkansas was the one that just had the, the spree of doing six or seven or eight of them in a month because their drugs were going to expire. And it becomes a big, ugly, divisive, emotional thing that people on both sides feel very strongly about. But on the other hand, here in Wisconsin, Wisconsin abolished the death penalty. Wisconsin is the only state in the Union that has exactly one execution on its record. It abolished the death penalty in like 1850 or something like that, I mean, before the Civil War. And... So, I mean, yeah, we have heinous crimes. We have the, the Sikh temple shooting here in Milwaukee. Um, and we have we had Jeffrey Dahmer, who eventually got beat to death in the prison. But uh, he got shanked. It's just right, yeah. It, but it's just, it's just kind of accepted that, okay, we don't have the death penalty in Wisconsin. So it's just not – people don't dig into it and get this big, huge fight over it. Each time there's a case, and each time it's applied, um, and yeah, you know, there's the abstract debate, and some people try to, you know, argue for bringing it back, and and I think they even had a referendum on it back in the '90s or something like that, and it failed. But uh, it, it really, I mean, I don't, I don't like seeing grieving victims uh, fighting this ugly political brawl with nuts, <laughs> you know. And that's what mm-hmm. that's what I see in the politics of states that have the death penalty versus at least my experience seeing it in Arkansas and how big a, I mean it was big headline news and the thing everybody was talking about each time there was an execution um, and there was huge protests and all that and so kind of aside mm-hmm. from the the merits of the question itself I, I see a, a, a healthier you know, just just taking the issue off the table of the day-to-day brawl of politics um, mm-hmm. is is something that I, you know, I would I'm glad I live in a state that doesn't have it now. And yeah, Andy, I'll give I, a I know even all my fellow cheeseheads. I was I was born and raised <laughs> in northern Wisconsin. Oh, well, there you go. I'm uh, I'm in Milwaukee now, so <laughs> we went in opposite directions. You went. Yeah, south, and I came north. That's right. <laughs> well, Terry, um, I it it has certainly been great having you on. I'm still looking at your um, your page here. Um, I want to ask you a couple of couple of quick questions here. Um, down here, 
um, under your quality of life section, you you have three things. That, if you don't mind talking about them just a little bit, one of them, one of the points is adapting to flooding and sea level rise. The other one is building a transportation system for the future, and the third one is protecting and healing air waterways. And and all three of those things are not something that um, libertarians generally discuss. But in your sections here, you have a very libertarian approach to each one. That's right. Um, you know, by and large, there's so much that can be done. Um, when we start thinking of the problems that we face and that we don't necessarily need the government to solve it, you know, there's ways that we can approach this, and sometimes it means keeping the government out of the way so it can be solved. Um, and, and, and just to divert off of that for a moment, I actually um, spoke before our local school board down here, and um, I got to have a conversation with the chair of our local school board, and he confided in me. He said, you know, there's things that we would like to be able to do as a school board, but we're hamstrung by the Code of Virginia. I said, well, there's a prime example of if this law – is not good for Norfolk, and that and Norfolk has like the third largest treasury in the state of Virginia. If that law is no good for Norfolk, maybe it's not good in Big Stone Gap and Winchester and Fairfax. Who knows? Maybe it shouldn't be a state law. You get those kind of laws backed off, and for those localities that want it, they can pass it at the local level. And that's that's where we look at some of these issues, like the ones that you just brought up, and say, what are some ways that we can relieve? pressure on localities so that they can come up with solutions that aren't mandated by the state, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah, know if that answered I think your question well, but... Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a very good, a good approach to things. Um, yeah, if I may well, I'm, I'm... Go ahead, Andy. Oh, I, I just had... Uh, I know we're about to wrap up here. I just had uh, uh, one point to, to mention... Um, I I just friended you on Facebook, Terry, and was about to go add you to our uh, Libertarian Pragmatist Caucus group, but I saw you're already in there. So I um, am. <laughs> so I, just, <laughs> I just wanted to mention we are going to be uh, at some point sending out and doing a candidate questionnaire um, for our endorsement. We're going to try and pick like five or ten candidates nationwide to highlight and endorse. Um, and I'm the I'm the political director for the caucus. And so that's uh, something we have coming up. I, I would encourage you to uh, definitely stay in touch with us and let us. In fact, now that I think about it, since this is the 2017 election, we might have to bump it up and kind of do that earlier for this election. Um, but, but that's something I'll follow up with you on. But you're definitely the exact kind of candidate we want out there. <laughs> that's great. Well, we've, we've gained a lot of traction. Um, I knew from from the beginning it was going to take – a very concerted ground game. It was going to take a commitment to actually getting out the door every day. I've got a full-time job. Um, above and beyond that, I know I had to be out there canvassing the neighborhoods, hitting all the civic leagues, um, going to all the community events, shaking the hands, making those connections, networking with community leaders. And yes. the reality is, you know, I've got an entrenched political party that has a massive war chest, you know, They've pulled in tens of thousands of dollars within two months, just the two guys that are going to primary in June um, to determine who's going to challenge me. 
Um, we're doing massive things on a, on a shoestring budget. We're doing great. Um, we've got the website up and running. We've got our, our initial collateral all set. Uh, we've got um, T-shirts that are uh, coming in the mail here or uh, are being printed actually locally so that all of my poll workers, on primary day, we're going to be handing out my palm cards to all the exiting voters and say, please consider Mr. Hersey. He's going to be on your ballot already in November. And, and, and just getting all those active voters in June aware that there's another choice already. But it's going to take more. You know, obviously, like every politician, it takes more and more money. The yard signs are going to be needed in October. You name it. And the more people that we can get, even what you just did, Andy, like the page, you know, go to um, elect Terry Hurst on Facebook. Um, go to terryhurst.com. You can get to our Facebook from there. You can make donations there. Um, we've got an outstanding platform. We use Anadot. Um, we've already filed our um, filings. I've, I've made my third filing with the uh, State Board of Elections, and I just got a call tonight from the local Board of Elections. She just confirmed that all my petitions um, are in. They stopped at 138. You only need 125. She said, we got to 138 and quick because you had several pages after that to go through. We're good. And so we're, we're thumbs up, hammered down. Things are cooking. We're, we're doing amazing things. And um, just appreciate all the support and help that everyone has been giving us to this point. Good. Well, that's great. We're we're going to keep supporting you. And, folks, if you're listening, please go to terryhurst.com. That's T-E-R-R-Y-H-U-R-S-T dot com. Even if you don't live in Virginia, if you don't live in Tidewater in the Norfolk area, and make a donation, $1, $5, $10, whatever. Uh, this guy is the real deal, and we want to help get him elected. So, Terry, mm-hmm. we do appreciate you coming on tonight, and I hope to have you on again uh, before the election and see what, what you're up to and how things are going. And then... We'll have you on probably from your office here in Richmond. Outstanding. And it was great meeting you, Joe. It really um, at the Cliff Hire nomination. Finally great to put a face with the name. And uh, of course yeah, those sure. that aren't in the Rose Tidewater area, if they if they want to be able to help but they can't make a donation, of course we're taking as many volunteers as we can get. We've got amazing things that they can be doing. We'll we'll put letters on letterhead to let them know that they gave community service. You name it. We've we've got great things happening, All right. no matter how you get involved. Okay, well, Terry, thanks so much for coming on, and we'll we'll do it again soon. Sounds good. Thank All you. Right. Have a good night. Good Thank luck. You. All right. Bye now. All right. Well, gentlemen, um, this has been one of our most entertaining shows and we had a really great candidate on and I told you Andy I told you and Jeff both before he even came on that he was supposed to come on the 26th and I said he's really great and I know you guys were probably sitting there saying well yeah I've heard that before <laughs> but uh, I, 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 I think I think you you believe me now don't you <laughs> no I just mm-hmm. shared his uh his Facebook page into our uh, Pride Caucus group. I uh, I'm I'm convinced. Uh, I I her should be one of our uh, candidates we're promoting nationally, uh, particularly during the odd year election when it's basically you guys in New Jersey are the only ones who have anything going on. The New Jersey party doesn't have a whole lot going on. So uh, uh, well, I was no, going to ask you about that, over. Andy. Yeah. What you thought of the what you thought of the New Jersey. Um, the governor candidate, Pete Rohrman. 
I I haven't followed anything other than I assume the Democrats going to win uh, with Christie being as unpopular as he is, but I haven't looked at the race much. I just know that the New, the New Jersey Libertarian Party is not as active and well-organized as the Virginia Party is, and they have a harder ballot access situation. But uh, I, I have not followed the details of the, the Virginia governor's rise. Assuming it's going to be a landslide for the Democratic nominee. Mm. You mean in the general election? So yeah, in the general. Whether they have a primary going on too, I assume. I, 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 yeah, we I have a primary that. on June on June thirteenth. I don't. Um, you know, I'm not one of these people that. You know, if I if I saw their candidate didn't have a chance of winning, I wouldn't be involved in it. So I'm, no, I'm no, not, you know, I Jersey race. I don't even know if there is a libertarian candidate in the New Jersey governor race. There might be, in which case I apologize to them. But um, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, was, I you know, um, the the they they had a guy running for New Jersey governor as a libertarian four years ago, and I, his name was Ken something, and he was a lawyer. And my biggest concern with that guy, I liked his platform. I liked everything he had to say, but it was like, I'm going to campaign from my office when I don't have a client in here, and I hope you guys tune in. You know, I mean, it was that kind of thing. And right. you're not going to win if you don't get out there. And libertarians right. have a hard enough time as it is. And I understand that there are, there are paper candidates and that they're sometimes very effective in what they do um, because they can draw attention away from somebody that you are trying to run to win. But make that, uh, I mean, for me, if, you know, I would have a very hard time taking people's money if I wasn't really trying to win. I mean, you know, right. because it right. doesn't matter who the libertarian is, they're always going to get donations. And I remember we had a paper candidate here, and this woman, I was at one of his events. He only had about four the entire time he was running, and three of them were on his front porch. Um, and I went, um, I went to one because it was right after something else I had been doing with LPVA. And this woman got so excited about what he was saying, and he was saying great things. I, I won't mention his name. He was saying great things, but I knew from the very beginning that oh, he was just running because um, Robert Sarvis had asked him to run to fill a spot, and that he really, right. and that he had said from the get-go, "I'll run, but I'm not leaving my city. I'm not traveling around." So this woman shows up, and she gets really excited about what he's saying, and she says, I'm going to donate the legal limit to his campaign. And, you know, I couldn't say, well, I don't know if I would do that because he's really just a paper candidate and you're wasting your money. Uh, you know, I couldn't say that, but she did. She wrote a check out at that very moment for the, the, the maximum amount she could donate as an individual to his campaign and was so excited, and he got less than 1% of the vote. Mm. You know, and that and that bothers me. And I and I agree. That's why I, uh, you know, we like we like Nick Starwork a lot. This is something I, I do slightly disagree with him on. He has this, you know, idea that we're going to run a thousand candidates, and you know, he came to our state convention and said, "Y'all should run 150 candidates." Um, and I'm, 
I, I mean, I, I'm not I, I, I'm not a strict hardliner to say we should never do paper candidates. And, and obviously it's good to have more candidates on the ballot. But it does get to this point where whatever viable candidates we might have get lost in the sea of paper candidates. And that's what the party gets to be known for and the reputation that it has is, oh, they just – they just run token paper candidates all the time. Yeah. And it, it's really hard for when we do have a serious viable running to win candidate for them to get out from under that perception and to stand out to people um, so that, you know, national donors know who's worth giving their money to so that they'll actually get some kind of return on it. Well, it's kind of to me. Um, when you run a whole lot of candidates and the idea is, well, we want people to see that libertarians are always on the ballot and so on. Well, a lot of people see that as there's another libertarian who isn't going to win. They always run and they Mm -hmm. never win. And, you know, and what I would like to see, and Andy, I've I've talked to you about this, and I know it's not going to happen. Um, because I've talked to Wes Benedict about it and several others, and they give me the same silly answer every time. But when you have a candidate, and I'll use Terry Hurst as an example because he really is um, a good example to use, there's a guy that can actually win. And that's a case where where the, where the LP um, needs to put um, – every cent they can behind that campaign in some way, you know, however they can do it, whether it's a pack, whether it's, you know, something, because they could focus on one election and they could win. You know, we could, we could 50 grand. We could win. I mean, the Johnson campaign raised $12 million. The LNC has an annual budget of a couple million dollars. Uh, we could be winning state legislative seats for 50 grand. Um, but, of course, that's still 10 times more than any of our state legislative candidates usually have to play with. That's usually more than our top-of-the-ticket candidates have to play with for Senate and governor. Um, we're spreading ourselves so thin. I mean, I, I for, just for myself, for the uh, when I ran for U.S. House for Congress, um, there was – Around out of the 435 seats, I think there was around 150, maybe 200 uh, libertarian candidates on the ballot, and that's great to have that many, you know, libertarians represented in that many districts. Um, I raised about five grand, and that put me in the top five. Uh, I think the top, can, you know, raised about 20 grand from the campaign finance filing. Uh, and there were only about a dozen of us that even filed at all. So most of them, like, literally didn't do any fundraising. Um, and so, I mean, I, I it, it just becomes a matter of we, we have the resources. It's not like the party does not have enough money to win these elections. We do have enough money. We just don't spend it on that. Yeah, and I, and I don't understand – what what you know it's one of the things that I was told when I mentioned this back in was it twenty fourteen when Lucas Overby ran in Florida and he was trying to get money and and I was thinking here's a race that he could win if the Libertarian Party would just put the money into it in some way, you know, a pack or something. 
And the response I kept getting was, we can't do that because then every candidate in the country will wonder why they didn't get money and they'll cry foul. And and my response, when Wes Benedict said that to me, my response was, let them cry foul. When the one candidate actually wins, throw it back in their face and say, we won. Sit down and shut the you-know-what up. Yeah. Hey, gentlemen, yeah, um, I got a text message. Yep. I got another phone call I need to make. I need to bail out tonight. but um, All right, well, we're going to call wonderful. it a night. Yeah. You guys yeah, have a great night. night. I'm glad you guys could be on here, and I hope all is well out in Wisconsin. <laughs> yep, we're, we're getting there. So, anyway, take it easy. all I'll right, gentlemen. Talk to you soon. Have a good night. All right, sounds good. Y'all have a good night. Bye. All right. Good night, everyone. If I am fancy free and love to wander, it's just a gypsy. Something calling me from way out yonder. It's just a gypsy in my soul. I've got to give vent to my emotion. I'm only content having my way. I'm fonder It's just a gypsy In my soul No cares No strings My heart It has wings If I Just a gypsy in my soul If I am fancy Just the gypsy in my soul, in my soul.